the more I see this, the more I realize that you actually should be more cocky. You should be more <laughs> like forward with the things that you've done and they take you more seriously because of it. What is good, everybody? This is Michael Sakond. I'm joined by my co-host and co-founder, the one and only Simi Sandu. And this is our future podcast. This is the number one show for young entrepreneurs. We studied the best and brightest in their early 20s that are building massive companies. And then we export out their insights, strategies, and business models so that you can download them for yourself and apply them to the business and ventures that you're building. So today we have some really crazy stories to tell you guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode and make sure to subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or on any of the podcasting platforms. And I'll let Simi say a few words before we kick this episode off. You got it, man. And you know you're gonna have to tease out these founders a little bit. We've been getting some feedback as of recent. They're saying, Mike, Simi, why are you, why are you guys covering so many MarTech founders, so many sales tech founders? And so, you know, like the advice they always give, which is go where the money is. That is what we are doing. And so we're covering people in healthcare and fintech. I can't think of any more lucrative industry than those two. Yeah, we'll follow the money. And in this case, <laughs> Hypercard is a company being built by two early 20s guys. The first is Nico Iwanu, and the second is Mark Bagajian. And they are building the first ever credit card to be backed by your employer. So the story is pretty wild. So Nico was in high school, drops out and builds a healthcare company and sells it to Galileo in, when he was 17 years old. And Galileo is a venture-backed uh, health tech company. Uh, I think its secondaries are in the hundreds of millions if it's valued at, you know, I think it's valued it's at a, It's a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. So that's just insane that he did that when he was 17 years old. So yeah, we're getting into prodigy territory. And then we have Mark Bagajian, who uh, is the a friend man. of me and Simi's, more so than Nika. We've known him longer. And he is the silver-tongued Adam Newman in a 22-year-old, 20, like 23-year-old, 24-year-old's body. So uh, Mark, his venture before Hypercard was building a Gen Z dating app called Lolly. And he raised a bunch of money for it, had some flashy investors. He cold emailed the former CEO of Apple, John Scully from his dorm room and got him to invest. And while that company didn't exactly pan out or end in an acquisition, um, he's now kind of put all of his eggs in this new basket with HyperCard. So yeah, I mean, the guys have some phenomenal backstories. They're both super impressive entrepreneurs, really, really versed for their age. It's very unlikely that two you know, early 20s guys are second time founders, uh, having been through the venture route, having been through acquisitions and deals and such. So, I mean, these guys are really well equipped. And it seems that they were very intentional about going after a really, really big opportunity. And I feel like fintech is an industry where you can actually shoot for the moon, you know? Totally. And I think they're playing to their strengths. Like when I think about Mark, I think his biggest superpower, honestly, is bringing like the magic, the energy to any concept he's working on, right? Like he knows how to bring that flair to it. And so I feel like you could stick him in like B2B accounting and he'll find a way to make it fun and energizing and buzzy. Um, on yeah. the other side, you know, again, I haven't had too much interactions with uh, Nico himself, but I get the vibe that, you know, he's very like nitty gritty challenge focused. Like with him, it's like, 
bring a hard problem and he'll find a way to come up with a solution. So I think together, I think they have a really unique dynamic relationship. And it's really interesting with what they're doing because from what I gather, it's like this converging of employer-based and consumer-based credit cards. Is that how you understand yeah. it as well? Well, there's no such thing as an employer-based credit card, right? That That's what they're reinventing with HyperCard. For the first time ever, the, the issuer technically is coming from the company you work for. And the real value they saw was intertwining benefits the company already offers with the benefits that your company can pay for when subscribing to the HyperCard system, right? So instead of you personally needing to foot the $700 a year Amex Platinum bill, your company will do it for you. And that's kind of awesome, right? Um, I would completely you know, use a card like this if it got me that lounge access, for example, and my morning brew was paying for it, be sweet, right? We love perks, we love benefits out here. Uh, they're doing something for the people. But to give a little bit more overview, the company's raised 15 million to debt, uh, to date in a mixture of debt and equity. Sam Altman is the leading investor and that speaks to the magic that these guys are able to bring because uh, not only did they get the world's biggest CEO in the world on their cap table, they got American Express to partner with them on this card. And you know, with credit cards, it's all about prestige, right? You got to tap into the name brand, right? You got to like siphon off some of that, uh, some of that brand loyalty. And they were able to do that by becoming an Amex network card. So they do have the logo and they are using the Amex like financial processing. And it's the same thing. You know, you got the, your security codes on the front instead of the back. It's kind of a flex. And so, that's one of yeah. the most interesting things, right? Like there's not that many cards in the Amex network. Is that right? I don't even know how many cards there are in there. I know there's a few, but I've never seen one other than HyperCard to this day. I think it's great, though. I think if you're trying to build a prestige-based credit card where you want to, you know, essentially uh, partner with someone who has prestige, it gives off this vibe of luxury. Like, there's probably not a better partner than American Express. And I think the story of how they got in front of American Express is also just as funny and entertaining in itself. Um, I think it was like a club owner <laughs> in Miami, and it's like the oh, famous yeah, yeah, Club yeah. 11. Um they had some relationship or some way that they knew the CEO of Amex or one of the higher up people. And that was their foot in the door. And I was dude, just like, I don't dude, know, that dude, is the I don't most know Mark McGagan story. Why does the owner of a strip club know the CEO of Amex? I feel like this is like a controversy waiting to happen. <laughs> I don't know if it was the CEO or what their, what their relationship was. I think the guy who owns Eleven is like a big <laughs> real estate developer. So he's probably, you know, also just like a big business guy. Probably does a lot, of, a lot of work with the bank. I'm envisioning a Bloomberg Businessweek Instagram post. It's like a child prodigy, a disgraced founder, oh, no. and a strip club owner blow up an Amex scandal. <laughs> well, yeah, man. I, I think it's a cool card. So tell me a little bit more about it. Like, So what kind of perks do people get and what was their opening into this market? Yeah, I mean, the perks that people get are like, a lot of the stuff through Amex. So like, you know, for example, their Centurion lounges, um, their airport lounges, um, they get the reservation and dining network through Amex, which is an awesome kind of integration. And then a bunch of other deals, right? Like all these kind of credit card companies work with these off the shelf, like benefits providers, which like give discounts on all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, whether it's exercise classes or ride share or, you know, shopping at excuse me, Lululemon, right? You get all of those things uh, in the back, but then you get to integrate them with what your company already offers, right? So 
you know, whether your company has like a fitness stipend or, you know, a, a little work from home stipend, you know, you can then integrate that with the card. And that brings me to the next major point in that a disruptive part of this particular card is that when you're using it on a work-related expense or something your company will cover, you can automatically expense. So no more getting a receipt or printing out a PDF invoice, submitting it to accounting with one click. Uh, it can be recognized as a transaction the company has the authority to cover and you simply can get the points and you don't need to hold a balance or you know, wait 30 days to get reimbursed by your company if you pay for something, which I think is really cool. Got it. So what it sounds like is you get all the perks that you would get from having a credit card sponsored by your employer, right? Like the flashy benefits of an Amex. But at the same time, you can still use it for like your personal expenses, right? So if I want to go yeah. fill up gas on my car, I could still use this employer branded credit card. What do you think that will be like on a, you know, a mass scale? Do you think people will be excited to use like you know, a credit card with Lyft on the on the front of it or like whatever their company is, a morning brew based credit card? Yeah, I think it would be kind of sick, right? Like, I don't know. I think Lyft and morning brew are good examples. I think better examples are like Google or Facebook or yeah. SpaceX, right? Where it's really hard to get into those firms and they really confer a lot of status for working there. Um, you know, I think for companies like that, it would be pretty sweet to like pull out a big heavy metal card with like Google on it. Right? Yeah, I think, you know, as you're talking here, it makes me think there's probably four or five things that you have to nail to build, say, a winning credit card in this day and age. Right. You have to figure out how to get status right. Right. So it's got to be a flashy credit card. What can make you feel better or look better compared to having any other credit card in your wallet? You have to get yeah. the perks right. Right. So the incentives have to make sense. Um, you also have to figure out cost or you have to win on transactions, right? So it has to be some, you know, more advantageous cost structure than using other credit cards in your wallet. Um, and there's probably one or two other things. I think you could probably win cost, of acquisition. cost for acquisition. I also think it's like, okay, this is kind of an interesting thing, right? Because the best parallel for what they have is probably like your Amex Platinum, right? So it's a, it's a $700 card. If you're telling me I can get that for free with all of the perks that a Platinum would offer, well, now they've also won based on integrations in those perks, right? You have to be able to uh, wrap that all in one. You have to be able to offer more than anyone else out there to truly win. And I think once you do win, once it does become the main credit card that they're using on every single transactions, now it's a sticky customer. For example, you know, I have the Apple card. Um, I have a few of these other ones too, but the Apple card, and the reason why I got it was just because I thought it was a cool card, right? It was like Goldman yeah. Sachs and Apple. It was a little flashy. It's a white credit card. It, you know, stainless steel bangs on the table. That's all cool. That's all fun. But is it actually the best credit card? I probably would say no. You would probably get more cash back. You'd probably get better perks elsewhere. But I think the the reason why there's an allure to it is um, outside of the status stuff, all of my expenses are within the Apple, like uh, within the iPhone, and I can see it all in one place, right? Every single thing right. that I'm, I'm using the card on, how much money I've spent. So that expense management for me personally has been huge. I know exactly where my money is going across various categories. And so I think if they can wrap that all in together and it's like this is an all-in-one card, um, that's a pretty compelling pitch. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all that. I think the all-in-one aspect to it is really important. Um, you know, what I don't know is if people are going to want to use a credit card that is given to them by their employer. Um, 
I think what Mark and Nico have said is it's all, you know, the companies can't access the transaction data. Um, but like, are you really going to like run your company card on like a, I don't know, like a adult website subscription? Like you wouldn't really want to do that. It's It's interesting. I think you almost have to take a step back and look at it from like, what's in it for the American Express, right? So almost like the sponsor for this card. And then what is in it for the employer, right? So why wouldn't Amex be interested in this is a good question, right? And I think it goes back to the fact that there is a small percent, a small percentage of people at a company who actually have their employer cards, right? And are actively using them. I think I saw something where it was like 10 to 15% of the people at a company actually have access to an employer card. Yes. American sure. Express would want that number to be 100%. They want everybody at the company using that, that card. The question for the right. employer then is, can they be trusted to use their card, right? At the end of the day, more cards means more expenses. And then on top of it, it becomes a huge liability issue, right? So right. if you can then go to the employer and say, hey, we have a way to track all of these expenses in a better way, better than Amex by themselves can do it. And we can hold people responsible. And the way that we can hold people responsible is that for some of the things that they would typically try to, I'm not going to say use it uh, in a malicious way, but maybe like they're trying to use those cards to tap in those perks. If we can just offer them for free, it kind of, you know, uh, deters them from trying to use it for in places that they shouldn't be. Or I, uh, the other way to look at it is if we can just integrate it with, hey, these are things that they could spend for their personal lives, it becomes less of a risk for the employer. So that's what I think is make, makes it so compelling on both both sides of the equation here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that also it's like these people are always going to pay off their balance, at least for certain expenses, because the company's covering it, right? Like, the company is effectively an insurer in that case. And they're an awesome partner for like an Amex, right? To go through a company instead of a private individual. Um, How do you think this extends? I'm, I'm curious about that, right? So like, is this supposed to drive the bond closer between the employee and the employer, right? Like if they're getting this kind of visibility into like where you're spending your money um, and what are the things that you're interested in, like this probably brings in really interesting data for them as well. I don't know if they have exposure to this information or what the privacy aspect here is, like what does that layer look like? But I'd be curious, like for them, it probably goes beyond just the money side. Like what else, what else makes this compelling for an employer? I think it's a huge play on employee satisfaction. I think there's this clan-like gene inside of us all humans that like, you know, we're signaling that we're part of this greater community. That's the status side of the card. That's the metal Google card, right? There's that when you're facing into the public outside of your firm. And then there's also just being able to access things um, that you don't have to pay for, right? Like that's the best part about working for a big company is for at Google, for example, it's the massages and the the, you know, the dog they bring over to you and, you know, the sushi chef from Japan, right? All those things are awesome. Everybody wants more company benefits. This is the issue though. Nobody uses their company benefits. I'd, I'd say there's a big, I haven't looked into the data, but I would say there's a big fat percentage of company benefits that aren't used. We got to think about things like uh, HSA accounts, right? Some people have an HSA card that could be integrated into the hypercard, right? That's an employer backed uh, a health related spending card that comes from, um, you know, uh, pre-tax earnings. Um, you know, nobody 
uh, you know, they could involve some 401k advance, like uh, with lending, lend, uh, Lendtree, like we just covered, right? Um, there's so much they can become, right? There's like many different products they can get into. And I think the corporate benefit space, uh, the big problem is there just isn't that like sticky product that makes it easy to adopt these things your company offers you. you I have think to there's go an education there's issue catalog. too, though. There's an Huge education. education issue. Yeah. Huge education issue. Like yeah. I was thinking about, I think we talked about this on a recent episode, but like a large language model to help you just understand the benefits of your company and all the dental plans, all the healthcare plans offered, right? Just like in plain English, please tell me what's going to be the best for me. Um, so yeah, I think there's a huge, huge problem there. And I think if it could just be consumerized through the hypercard, people could actually take, take advantage of a lot of the shit their company gives them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also want to highlight how these guys got together, right? So, you know, I think it's kind of serendipitous timing, which is, you know, Nico's coming off the sale of his first company. Um, Mark is also looking for his next big opportunity. And I, I love the story of how they got together. I think they were, they had initially known about each other through this thing called Z Fellows. And it's started by this uh, guy yeah. named Corey, Corey Levy. Um, mm -hmm. but I find that those co-founder stories so interesting sometimes it's like, what is that common thread that pulls people together? Because if you were to look about it, their trajectories are so different, right? Like Nico's in healthcare, Mark was in the consumer world. Like they, in on paper, they have no business being in a relationship yeah, together, starting a company, paper, but yeah. On paper, but they were both kind of wonderkins, right? Like yeah. Mark having as big of a profile as he did, um, you know, getting covered in all those outlets for the dating app and having his buzzy of investors and such. I mean, I credit so much of, of Mark's mentality around being a young entrepreneur to what ended up happening with our future. I mean, conversations with him were what propelled me to even consider fundraising and consider expanding, you know, the business. And I don't know if I would have done that without Mark. Uh, he's got such a big swinging attitude. He always uh, pushes other people to think bigger. Um, and to put all their chips or put all their you know cards on the table or put all their chips in and not doubt yourself. I think he has like an amazing sense of self-belief and uh, he's just a master at what he does. He understands what drives investor psychology, PR psychology, customer psychology. Like he just understands those things so intimately and can execute on those insights. Um, yeah. And hypercard is the greatest amalgamation right? It's the greatest combo of all these different things that he's good at, which is big partnerships, big flashy partnerships, big flashy investors, and branding that excites across all the stakeholders. I yeah. just think, I just think he's nailed it there. I agree with you. I mean, I think the, one of the biggest challenges you have as a young entrepreneur is just putting yourself out there. And what you notice is like when you're pitching to say important people, important companies, um, high stakes meetings, you want to be like, I feel like people are usually very humble with their like achievements or their track record. And it's like, oh man, like I don't want to come off as arrogant or cocky to these people. But the more I see this, the more I realize that you actually should be more cocky. You should be more like <laughs> bored with the things that you've done and they take you more seriously because of it. I think that like I saw this uh, Gary Tan tweet, where, which was essentially like, you know, you go to these dinners and you you ask people what they do and they give you like a very humble 
thing like as to, to to like oh this is what we're working on or whatever and you don't really get a sense of what their drive is right and i think yeah. that's something that you have i think that's something that mark has which is like this unapologetic almost just demeanor which is like this is who i am this is why it's going to be a massive company and like either bet on me or bet against me but like don't waste my time yeah. like and i think that actually yeah. goes a, a a long way and most people don't think like that or don't op operate that way i don't know if it can be i feel like it can be learned but some some part of it is just right in the the person um for sure for there sure. are other levers there are other levers to pull but i think uh there is a fine line though between being like delusional and cocky as a young founder and coming off as I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Nobody wants to like be around you. Nobody wants to meet with you because it's clear you're just super whack. Right. Yeah. So I think there has to be like, there really does have to be a good idea at play and some traction there. Right. Before you can go around and, and start talking that game. Right. There needs to be like something underlying. Well, to some extent, you're playing a character of sorts, right? You're playing a specific kind of character for your investor. You're playing a specific kind of character for your customers. And then you're playing a different kind of character in real life and how you act with your friends, right? Uh, Mark, yeah. as in the relationship we have as his friends, is probably very different than the Mark we see in the business world and how he's pitching his investors. And I've gotten to know the softer side of Mark, which is like just a really like nice, caring guy, right? And really, really you, may not, you may not yeah. see that when in the more like bold, audacious Mark. Um, and yeah. I think that's part of it too, is like knowing when to turn that switch on and off is also so important. You can't be a hardo all the time, but there are specific times where you can use it as a strategic yeah. advantage. And I think that's when it's so important to know your customer and know who you're talking to. The superpower isn't the superpower. The superpower is being able to control the superpower. There you go. And bring, unleash, <laughs> that dog, unleash that dog in you when it counts in the boardroom, but when you're out, Make sure people can get behind you and actually enjoy your, your presence. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. So uh, next, we're covering these two guys in their mid-20s. Their, name their names are Shub Sinha and John Kuhn. They're building the railroads of healthcare data with their company Integral. And I think if they get it right, it's going to make them billionaires. So here's a little bit on how it works. So in healthcare, you have this thing called HIPAA. It's essentially a law that prohibits doctors or hospitals from sharing your data without your permission. But if you work at a health tech company or an insurance company or in a pharma company, you may need some high level data on things like consumer attributes or patient attributes in this case. So like their race, their income, where do they live? Um, and usually you would use that info to guide things like vaccine deployment or where you're budgeting your spend at. But the challenge is, is that you can't buy that data unless you get HIPAA compliance approval first. And usually big firms like Deloitte and PwC are in charge of that process. So what ends up happening is that those firms end up running their own privacy models and analysis on this data. And by the time they scrub it, the, the data is no longer really valuable, right? Like they've essentially, um, like it's almost overprotective to the point where like it's not really usable. And so it becomes this really interesting thing where, you know, these healthcare companies are like, well, it's better than nothing. Um, and so they end up using it. And so what John and Shub have figured out with their company is they built a software that essentially runs every HIPAA compliant version of that data set 
So a healthcare company can go in and pick and choose whichever data set is most useful for them. So not only do they speed up the process, but they give you a bunch of different versions. So you have more options as the healthcare provider or the buyer in this case. I feel like if you can build a company that removes a team of consultants in any industry or category, you've won already, right? Like I, I'm investing. Guilty as charged. $10,000. I'd like, I don't know. I, I think um, I, I think he found a magnificent gleaming problem. And he did it working in, I think, the advertising space when he had clients that were in the pharma category. So it's one of those examples of a guy that was working in a exciting company with a lot of growth and just identified a great business idea through just the clientele that he was working with. So that's just dope, right? Uh, what a really, really, really good problem. Um, yeah, dude, I feel like data has always been super valuable. But now with that being the raw ingredients for these algorithms and such, the processing of said data is becoming almost as valuable as having the data itself. Or... And that what's the point of like building, um, like don't even build a front end, right? Don't like, just, just be the data provider. I feel like that's something we learned from a recent conversation we had with a VC who had, uh, telling us about this travel app that he was advising, a uh, travel software application. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like filtering it out. It's almost like purifying it. And that's yeah, what, what you're doing. It's the infrastructure thing, right? Like you don't want to be on the marketing game. You don't want to be the person having to get people to use the data. You just want to make the data better. So it is. Well, yeah. It's like refining. Yeah. It's, yeah, like oil exactly. refi it's like Rockefeller railroads of data, right? Oil refinery of medical data. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think you pointed to the story a little bit, but the origin for this is actually Shub was working at a company called LiveRamp, and it's a multi-billion dollar ad tech data company. And funny enough, healthcare is actually one of their smallest divisions. Like they, they actually work with like massive consumer brands and things like that. So I think it is a little bit of just like serendipity and luck at its, you know, playing into itself again, um, where Shub was essentially like the PM and he was like the product lead of sorts on uh, this specific initiative. So he was working with all these big pharma companies and he's like coming across this problem because the consultants were just super slow. Like they'd be waiting long, they'd be waiting, uh, he'd be waiting forever trying to get this data back, right? And then he would give it to their clients and they'd be like, all right, well, what is this? Like, we can't even do anything with this. And he's like, guys, like, uh, I, what, what can I do? Like, like my hands are tied here. And so, you know, he essentially went to LiveRamp and he's like, listen, I think there's an opportunity here. Like, why don't we just create some kind of software that, you know, can build out these models and we can be, you know, this compliance you know, person where um, we figure out what is HIPAA compliant and then we can just offer it to our clients. And they were like, yeah, no, like it just doesn't make sense for us. And he's like, well, can I run with it? And they're like, yeah, sure, if you want to. And so he leaves the company and ends up getting them as a client. So LiveRamp- Yeah, that's Live, the goaded path. Yeah, LiveRamp Live Ramp ends up being a customer. Um, and I thought that was great. And then, you know, John, also great, super smart guy. Um, these guys had actually met at Purdue where they went to school. And 
I think it's so funny. They were arguing about Steve Jobs in a programming language in class, and they had gotten called. Uh, they had gotten called out by their professor in like this four hundred person seminar, um, and that was like the start of their friendship. So you brought his boy that's John like nerdiest, back in the fold. That's like the nerdiest <laughs> story ever. Arguing about Steve Jobs in a programming language. <laughs> how about that's that's like how not to get a girlfriend one on one. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny, and now like they. They have a great friendship and i think they're building a really cool company so Do you know how um, much revenue to them huh how much revenue are they doing they're i know they're in the seven figures i don't know the exact amount well that's impressive because you started only like two or three years yeah ago, it's a right? super they're super early for sure yeah and they've raised a decent amount of money like six million right six, six to seven million haystack is like yeah. one of their uh lead investors but you know i think it's so interesting because i also worked wait, at wait Elo. wait 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 wait, wait. When are you going to disclose your conflict of interest here? Because I heard you're a shareholder in this I was company. getting to that. I was getting to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny for sure. But I have a lot of belief in this, guys. And when Shub first told me about the idea, um, I was like, I don't quite understand this. Um, but I'm going to invest in you because I know you're just a beast and you'll figure it out. So I ended up putting in a small check. Um, you know, when the, it was so funny when they were telling me, it was like, okay, I hear healthcare and I hear data. I know if you figure out some way to do both of those things, you will be very rich. And I want to be on that on that ride with yeah. you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Now I actually understand the company, and it's like, oh wow, this is a huge problem. Like, why is yeah. no one talking healthcare, to this? Healthcare and data is like the startup equivalent of like candle roses hotel you know something good's gonna happen when you hear those things <laughs> for sure for sure you know what's interesting is when i was working at lily there were these two companies it was called symphony and iqvia um and they were like the big software providers they just had so much data on like pharmacy claims um and you even got it to like the week of week level right so if it was like a lily drug for example like uh trulicity right you could see how much trulicity was sold against like everybody else in the competitive landscape um and this they software were a data provider data, data provider but they it was also like a visualization platform as well like if you could see how many prescriptions were going out and they had a digital and a print version um where they had like this massive report that you could read and i remember them paying so much money to use that software like i think even for the smaller the smaller like uh healthcare companies they were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars this is like startup level i can only imagine what they were charging like the big pharma companies at the time yeah man being a data provider is just amazing right like it's like you all you have to do is sell information like that's the product if you can find a way to like capitalize like create a source for it in this case they're not even creating the data they're just processing it which i again i really really like that model I think data anonymization is going to be a really big category going forward with these AI models. I think um, particularly in healthcare, when people are now looking at their data as their most valuable asset, I mean, they always have, but now it's becoming really important, right? Like look at the New York Times suing OpenAI, right? Your information is your key to your own AI model now, right? Like your key is, that's your your ticket to, you know, an AGI for your business. So Companies are paying very special attention to the quality of those ingredients. It's like, okay, like, you know, I'm in, I live in Austin. I go to Central Market. I consume Whole Foods. I don't touch honey from safe, you know, from Kroger, whatever it is. It's almost like with AI models, they got to eat right. 
And if you can deliver healthy food to these hungry little growing monsters, right? You can uh, be very valuable to to the company building those those monsters. I yeah, I think anonymization is an interesting point here because I also believe like healthcare is going to become more and more personalized as we keep going. Like there's so many of these health tech companies, there's so many of these apps, whatever, and there's just data being spread everywhere. But if you think about it, like the needs of 50 year old farmer Joe living in Indiana are very different than, you know, um, like the affluent young, you know, woman working in banking in New York City, right? And I think typically, when you think about standard of care, like these healthcare companies just have to like, think about them in blocks of sorts, right? Like it, they reach like almost a barrier and they can't get more specific than that. And I think they're gonna find really unique ways to improve that standard of care based on who it is they're targeting and what they actually need. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this evolves. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that those people have very different needs and it's very top of mind for these companies. I think if one thing were to go wrong, it would be something regulatory, like it for gets sure. even stricter as like, for example, the US falls in GDPR's footsteps. Or it's like they get bullied out of the market. Like I just did a story for our future on Epic Systems and Judy Faulkner, the billionaire who runs it from Wisconsin, she just intentionally has designed it as a closed system so that it doesn't communicate with other software. And she has two thirds of Americans' health records, right? So she is also trying to capitalize on this like, data market and you know the kind of the ai angle to it that i read and i just feel like some of these bigger players could totally box out tube's business if they decide to start offering this service or if they decide to change the rules because they run the game right so depending on um you know what what the rules are or if companies build out their own internal tools right because sure you know you need to this HIPAA compliance is important, but you know, I don't know. I, I could see a side to it. Well, you need that third party unbiased person, right? Like, because okay. if you think about it, like at the end of the day, the consulting firms are still in charge of compliance approval here, right? Like they still have to make sure that, you know, like you're not getting, you know, very intrusive data and they're going to be right. the ones who say yes or no. So they're not going to let the companies dictate that with their own models. Like the, the incentives just don't make sense. The consulting firm does not give a shit whether this helps the healthcare companies or not. They're just trying to cover their own ass. What they don't want is that Wall Street Journal, Journal article that comes out where it says, oh, Deloitte, you know, there was a data privacy leak and this ended up being like this huge disaster where all this patient data got exposed. Um, so like, there's no advantage for them to help out. Now, if Shub can come in and say, hey, here are 10 different versions of this data set. All of them are HIPAA compliant and like choose whichever one you like. Like we're not even going to be the ones to tell you, you only have to use this version. I think that's like pretty compelling for most healthcare companies. It's like, all right, well, again, better than nothing. And I think that also is an interesting point of like trying to build companies where the current solution is, damn, well, it's better than nothing, so I guess we should use it. Um, because it's like they're using it out of necessity rather than you know need or want. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, compliance just seems like such a great space to be in no matter what, right? Uh, because it has to be done. So there's probably a better way that compliance can be done in a lot of different industries. So I feel like that's just a framework that a lot of young entrepreneurs can take away from the conversation. Another cool thing about Shoop's strategy was they got the guy who wrote the law specifically 
forcing healthcare companies to comply with this certain kind of data scrubbing practice. It's almost like you're building like an equality company and you're like, bitch, we got Thomas Jefferson right here. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they got, they got the guy, they've got the guy um, to know the space and to help them young guns kind of become real and respected. Well, sometimes, yeah. I mean, it's like you want to be the young trailblazer, but there's a lot of value in having the grown up in the room sometimes, yeah. especially with these but, people who are just naturally skeptic. They're so academia focused. They're focused on their PhDs and they're like, well, what did you contribute to X, Y, or Z? And it's like, listen, we got literally like the, the guy who sponsored this legislation or like was at least a big proponent for it in the in the room with us. Like he is by our side and like recognizes the value in what we're doing. It's like, it's definitely one way to build legitimacy around your company and yourself. Dude, if there's one takeaway from this conversation to me, it's just how valuable relationships are to young entrepreneurs. Yeah. Unless you're like Zuck and you code something up yourself that gets 100 million users without any money raised, probably don't need an adult to tell you what to do. <laughs> but I just, if you're doing any other kind of business, you need to be able to get these stakeholders who are much older and sophisticated to believe in you. And that's not an easy thing to do all the time, you know? Um, that I think really the difference is the too is like where you're selling into. So I think that that Zuck, analysis, uh, Zuck analogy makes a ton of sense when you're building something consumer focused, like consumer social or whatever. But I think anytime you're selling into businesses, it, you're gonna yeah. run into those barriers. And that's that's when it could make sense to bring in someone You need who your uh, like Sam Ratner. Sam Ratner's boy, right? The guy yeah. who worked with all the gaming commissions and stuff. Yeah. Um, look, nobody knows what consumers want, right? But there's people who know what businesses want and you got to get sure. those people on your side. Yeah. Totally. All right. Yeah. I think on that, let's wrap. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Our Future Podcast. Uh, appreciate you guys tuning in to me and Michael every single week. We love doing this. Please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to this. And we will catch you again next week with another episode of Our Future Podcast. Stay frosty. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.